0: Well, praise the Lord. Good to see everybody. And um, just wanted to uh, say hi to the new folks, but to remind you that last week we finished a series we entitled A Journey in Joy Through Philippians. Now, it was different from any other uh, study we've ever done here at Calvary. The standard style of teaching we, we always do is verse by verse. But with our study through Philippians, we didn't go verse by verse. Now, we have done that in the past. We've already done Philippians several times, verse by verse, Uh, but this time we went topically through the book according to its theme. According to its theme. You see, every book in the New Testament has a theme, especially the epistles, and the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. So I took the main theme of joy, and I isolated all the places in the epistle where Paul mentions joy and rejoicing. Then I went to each of those passages and studied the context in which Paul was using the concept of joy, and then placed each passage under a specific heading, you know, joy in fellowship, joy in service, joy in giving, etc. And those headings became the main points we built our series around. I'd like to do that again, but this time with the book of Galatians. So if you turn there, just to let you know that the main theme of Galatians is liberty. Liberty, the liberty that is ours in Christ. And since the main theme of Galatians is liberty, I'm calling this new series, are you ready for it? A Journey in Liberty Through Galatians. You didn't see that coming, did you? The key verse of the book of Galatians is chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And so with that in mind, guys, I'd like to focus our attention on three main areas, three topics of liberty that Paul brings up in this epistle. Here they are, liberty from lies, liberty from law, and liberty for life. Now before we actually get into this epistle, let me give you some background. Unlike Ephesus, which was a city, a city that was located in western Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, Galatian wasn't a city, it was a province or a region that contained many cities, like Chicago is a city. Cook County is a region that contains many towns and cities. Now, Paul visited this region on all three of his missionary journeys. The first time he did is recorded in Acts chapters 13 and 14, where he planted churches in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Many believe that Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians uh, from Corinth sometime around the spring of AD 53, shortly before he wrote the book of Romans. Now, some actually refer to Galatians as the first draft of the book of Romans because it essentially contains much of the same doctrinal material, just in a condensed form. After Paul visited Galatia, he later learned that the Judaizers had come into the area after him, trying to pervert the gospel that Paul had given to them. And, unfortunately, the churches were listening to them. Who were the Judaizers? Who were the Judaizers? The word Judaizer comes from a Greek verb meaning to live according to Jewish customs, one author had this to say about the Judaizers. He suddenly quote, "The Judaizers taught that in order for a person to become a Christian, if he was a Gentile, he had to first become a Jew. He had to be circumcised and keep the laws, the law of Moses. Then he could put his faith in Christ and be saved." Their message was a mixture of Christianity and Judaism, of grace and law, of faith plus works. This false doctrine was dealt with in Acts 15 and strongly condemned by the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians. See, the Judaizers tried to discredit Paul and turn the Galatians against him by saying that he wasn't a real apostle. He wasn't one of the twelve, right? And because he wasn't one of the twelve, he's a phony. His message, therefore, is not reliable. He didn't give you the true gospel, the Judaizers said to these folks in that area of the world. And so the Judaizers sought to destroy confidence in Paul's message by undermining confidence in the messenger himself. And so Paul wrote this letter to counteract their message by presenting clearly the one and only true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. I don't know if you realize this, but this was the book that changed Martin Luther's life. It was the book that changed Martin Luther's life because of its emphasis on salvation by grace through faith. In fact, Martin Luther was so attached to this book, he actually called it his wife. I don't know how Katie felt about that, but he was so attached, he called the book his wife. And many church historians maintain that the foundation of the Reformation was laid with the writing of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. It's a pretty pivotal book. Now, Galatians is the most impersonal and businesslike of all of Paul's epistles. There are no pleasantries, no say hi to this person for me or to that person. Just a quick introduction by Paul of himself, and then, okay, let's get down to business. Kind of an attitude. The reason for that was because the gospel was under attack, and souls were at stake, and as such, Paul had no time for small talk or pleasantries, When it came to defending the gospel, Paul was all business. That's the background. So the first main point we're going to start looking at today is liberty from lies. Liberty from lies. You know, there's an old Bing Crosby song that contains the line, Ask me no questions and I'll tell you no lies. I wasn't there when he first sang it, although this body is wearing out to a point where I feel like I was. And when I was putting together this this message, that, that I don't know why that line popped into my I had to Google it. The line popped into my head. I don't know who said it. It was old Bing. But um, it seems that we're living at a time when lies have become so common and so pervasive in our culture that it seems to ask a question of any substance or importance is to invite a lie, is to invite a lie. In fact, lying has become so widespread and so culturally accepted in our day that people will often lie when there's no reason for it. When it's just as easy, if not easier, to tell the truth, they'll still lie. It's gotten reflexive with a lot of people. This shouldn't surprise us because our Lord Jesus Christ warned us that the closer we got to his return, the more the deception, the more the lies would ramp up. Now, of course, <clears throat> he was speaking primarily about spiritual lies, You know, the lies of the devil. That would target the truth of God, primarily the gospel. But I believe his comments pertain to the overall dishonesty and deception that would characterize the last days in general. But with regard to spiritual deception, Jesus warned us that this deception would eventually reach a climax with the coming of the Antichrist. You can check out Matthew 24. In fact, I think the Olivet Discourse is recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, I believe. But we are told in the New Testament that when the Antichrist comes onto the world scene, he will deceive the human race with the greatest lie mankind has ever been subjected to. This would be the very lie that Satan introduced into the Garden of Eden, the lie that he told Adam and Eve that caused the fall of mankind in the beginning. We are told that This lie would eventually be presented to the whole world under the Antichrist and false prophet, a specific lie that the Bible in Romans 1.25 and 2 Thessalonians 2.11 refers to as the lie. Folks, the world is full of lies. The Bible talks about many lies. But there is one lie that got its start in the Garden of Eden. Uh, The mother of all lies sown by the father of lies, the devil, And it's a lie that was introduced into the Garden of Eden in its embryonic state and has had 6,000 years to grow and develop and spread. And it's going to be then presented to the whole world in the Antichrist ministry. He's going to present a new religion. Initially, he's going to come and he's going to partner with religions, thinking that he's a, a man of all religions. But when he gains enough power and enough following, he'll eventually turn on established religions of the world in other words the world church and he will present a new religion where he himself is worshiped as God and I believe that that religion will be a fulfillment um, fruition of, of what started in the Garden of Eden and it's eventually going to be presented to the world as the lie the one the devil is going to use see the, the very lie that Satan used to cause the human race to fall in the beginning it's going to be the very lie he is going to use to cause the destruction of the human race in the end. It's interesting. Now, in other studies, we have looked at this lie in detail. I'm not going to do it today. Uh, the last time we looked at it was in our study in Romans a few months ago. Chapter 1, verse 25, spent uh, three weeks talking about it. So You can go online and listen to it if you're interested. I'm just kind of sketching this out. I'm presenting it to you just in general terms. But um, you say, what is this lie? Well, it's the lie that man can become God, starting with the Antichrist himself. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, I'm going to pick it up in verse 3, where Paul said, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. That's talking about the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 24:15. The Antichrist was going to set his image up in the Holy of Holies and demand to be worshipped as God. He's going to create a new religion, and he himself will be worshipped as the only true God. Jumped on to verse 9. The coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders or miracles and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. They didn't want the gospel. They rejected it. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. You don't want the truth. You don't deserve the truth. You love darkness rather than light because your deeds are evil. God will let you have darkness. Verse 12, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Notice how the Holy Spirit plays off these two concepts. The lie and then the truth. Ultimately, the whole human race will be of one of two positions. People of the lie and people of the truth. The book of Revelation talks about that. Because understand that the Antichrist will not be the most wicked liar to have ever existed. No, that... Distinction goes to the devil, whom Jesus called the father of lies in John eight forty four. Why don't you turn there? And if you're really interested in this, again, you can go into our Roman study, also our John study, chapter 8. In John chapter 8, though, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. Quite a little confrontation, okay? He says in verse 44 to them, you are of your father, the devil. So there's no, you know, there's, they pretty much knew where they stood with the Lord. Okay, no beating around the bush. Uh, You are of your father, the devil, and the desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. In other words, he speaks his native language. He is a liar and the father of it. Guys, when Jesus referred to Satan as the father of lies who was a murderer from the beginning, He no doubt has in mind how Satan lied to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and, listen, murdered them. How did he murder them? Well, God said to them, you may eat of all the trees in the garden. Put them in this beautiful paradise. Uh, We don't know how big it was. Uh, I'm under the impression it was pretty sizable. And it had probably thousands of beautiful fruit-bearing trees. And God said, you may eat of all the trees in the garden except one. You may not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for in the day that you eat of that tree you will surely die satan takes the form of a serpent and says look you're not going to surely die that's a lie god lied to you he knows that in the day that you eat of that tree not only will you not die your eyes will be open and you'll become god they bought into that they embraced that lie they ate of the forbidden fruit and they died They didn't die physically, at least not immediately. They did set in motion uh, the um, entropy loss. Things began to run down, wear out at that point. Uh, In fact, the Hebrew is, uh, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, dying you will surely die. It's a process. But what happened was they did die immediately spiritually. Their their spirit was murdered. Their spirit died. Which meant their connection, their communion, their fellowship with God was broken. And they became two dimensional creatures. Everybody born since that time has been born a two dimensional creature, body and soul, with no spirit. That's what happens when you accept Christ. You are born of the spirit, you are born again, and now you are made a threefold being, and you are joined to God, spirit to spirit. That's how we fellowship or, or have communion with God. But, guys, Satan has been a murderer from the beginning of time, in that he has been a liar, a master deceiver, who keeps people from the truth or. He, he either keeps them from the truth altogether there's many false religions out there that completely uh come from a whole different perspective but then there are christian cults uh, cults based on christianity mormonism jove's witnesses christadelphians others these are all cults based on the christian faith and what he does then is he perverts the truth Some he keeps away from it completely. Others, he takes the basic truth, twists and perverts it until, even if it's embraced by people, it can't save them. This, folks, is at the heart of Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. He came and gave them God's truth, the gospel. But after he left the region, Satan sent his messengers, the Judaizers, to pervert the true gospel so that it couldn't save them. It couldn't save them. Guys, only the true gospel can bring new life in Christ. We know that. A false gospel, no matter how sincerely it is believed and embraced, cannot save, will not save anyone. Lies can't save you. Only the truth of God could save you. In John's gospel, Jesus said in chapter 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So Jesus likened himself to the door that leads to salvation. He went on to say in chapter 14 of John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Guys, there's only one entrance into salvation heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. He is the door, he is the way. But listen, any door that leads to something of great value is going to be locked. Think about that, Right? Any door that leads to something of great value is going to be locked. And likewise, the door leading to salvation, salvation is priceless. The door leading to salvation is locked and requires a key to open it as well. What is the key that unlocks the door and allows a person to enter into Christ and find salvation? Well, very simply, it's the gospel. The gospel is to salvation what a key is to a lock. However, we all know that a key won't unlock a door if it's somehow gotten bent or twisted. The key must be straight and true if it's going to be used to open a door. The same is true with the gospel. If Satan can twist and pervert the gospel, he can keep the door of salvation locked to seekers. Well, he'd love it if a person was an atheist. He works hard at keeping people away from religion altogether. But he knows a lot of people are not going to ever become atheists. They're, they have a religious bent to them. God's made us all with a God-shaped void in our hearts that only God can fill. And so the devil knows that people are seekers many times by nature. They're looking for spiritual truth. So what he does with this, he does some of his best work through religion, by the way. But if he can pervert the gospel, which he has, if he can pervert the gospel, even though people are seeking, even if they stumble on a perverted form of the gospel and embrace it with all their heart, again, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and so on, it won't save them. Now that's where we commit. That's where we commit people of God. The Lord has commissioned us to go into all the world preaching the true gospel to the lost. That's our commission, to go out into all the world and give people the true gospel. And guys, no one took that commission more seriously than did Paul the apostle. And because Paul took it so seriously, he was attacked constantly by the devil. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle. Now listen to what he says here. Not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God, the Father, who raised him from the dead, raised Jesus from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, remember I said Paul is all business and goes right on the offensive against the false teachers that claim that Paul wasn't really a true apostle. I mean, he wasn't picked by Jesus to be an apostle. And, and that's why Paul is saying here, look, I am an apostle, but not of man nor through man. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, He would go on to say in different places, first of all, I'm an apostle that was born out of due time. What does that mean? I wasn't with the original 12. That's true. But Jesus Christ appeared to me later, and he commissioned me. He called me to be an apostle. He says, look, haven't I seen the risen Lord? Are not the works of a true apostle wrought through me miracles? To see the risen Christ and to work miracles in his name were the two criteria that authenticated a person's ministry as an apostle. And so Paul says, Look, you're right. I was not one of the 12. I came later, but I'm still an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was always trying to um, correct the record because this was a, a, a vicious lie that was spread throughout the known world. Everywhere Paul went, the Judaizers would move in behind him, discredit him, claim he was a phony. He wasn't really an apostle. You can't trust his message and so on. Now, guys, today we hear much the same thing as people try to challenge, you know, a man's right to be a pastor. Today, there's a lot of people who put a great amount of emphasis and legitimacy on, uh, on Bible schools and, and seminaries. Uh, there are those groups that believe if you don't have a degree from a Bible college or a seminary, you're not qualified to be a pastor. I heard a very well-known pastor on the radio. You all know him. He's a good guy. I'm not going to say his name. He's just wrong on this. He's just flat out wrong. But he said, if you don't have a degree in ministry from a seminary or whatever, you're not qualified to be a pastor. Well, whatever happened to the passage where Paul said, you know, God chooses the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies to do his greatest work, too, because when he uses nobody's like me, he gets all the glory, because nobody's going to look at me, or especially, you know, uh, one of our Calvary pastors with a big church, giant church, they're going to look at that and go, well, that's got to be God. That was not done by this crazy guy, okay? Look, Calvary Chapel is one of the greatest movements that God has ever raised up in bringing him glory. Because, again, we are... The, blue collar guys back in the 60s when calvary first started the hippies were, were all over the place and you know uh they were into drugs they were selling drugs they were living on the beach they had no jobs they were wearing you know bell-bottom jeans and tie-dye t-shirts and and just you know they were just anti-establishment but god loved these kids and began to reach out to them and they began getting saved and as they did he laid his hand upon them his spirit i have here look graduating from a seminary doesn't make you a pastor it makes you a graduate schools bestow degrees on men and call them ministers but only jesus christ can anoint can bestow his spirit upon somebody and call them into the ministry that's what he did with calvary chapels that's how we got started and 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 god took all these crazy guys and began to use them in ways that went so far beyond them everyone began to realize that look you don't need a degree to be in ministry. All you need is the anointing of God upon your life. Guys, Paul wasn't ordained by man. I mean, he didn't represent any particular denomination because he was not appointed by man. He was appointed and anointed by the Lord Jesus Christ to be an apostle, which means one who was commissioned to go forth with a message. A, an apostle means one who was commissioned to go forth with a message. Usually they represented a, a government on foreign soil or a king of some kind, Right? The king would send you out to a foreign country to be his emissary uh, and ambassador. And uh, that's what they were, and so on. Now, in verse 3, we read where Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul mentions this present evil age there, right? He's delivered us from this present evil age. Guys, this is a reference to the devil's control of this world system, which started with the fall and will run until Jesus Christ returns to destroy the devil's rule and establish his kingdom on the earth, a kingdom of righteousness and peace. The Jewish people um, talk about this present evil age. It was a common Jewish uh, term. This present evil age is understood by the Jewish people to be the time from when man fell. Remember now, God was uh, was in control when Adam and Eve and gave the world over to Adam and Eve, who when they sinned against God, they turned it over to the devil. At that point, the devil became the um, world's new owner and man's new master. The devil became at that point the God of this world. That happened from the fall, but it will continue. Right now, we are living in a fallen, corrupt age. It will go on this present evil age until Jesus returns to, to the earth and establishes a new age, the kingdom age, where he will rule over this world for a thousand years and then on into eternity. But right now we are living under a cursed system, an evil age of man's rebellion and rule. The word evil, guys, is a Greek word. We get the word pernicious from, meaning deadly or destructive. It's also a Greek word. We get the word pornographic, from it speaks of a situation of such moral and spiritual decline that causes people not just to want to practice evil things but to get as many people involved with them to practice them also it's not enough for people and we see it today it's not enough for people just to do evil things you know and sexual things and all kinds of other things right they want to get other people to join them misery loves company and that's the the time that we're looking at right now, the the last days, you can read First uh, Timothy uh, chapter three verses one to five. Paul talks about this. This is what we're li- living in right now. But again, reading verse four, who gave himself Jesus Christ, for our sins. The Greek is actually who gave himself because of our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God, our God and Father. Guys, the Greek word for deliver means to pull from danger, to pull from danger. Jesus entered into this world, a condemned world, on a search and rescue mission. We've talked about this, right? He said in Luke 19, verse 10, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. So Jesus entered into this condemned world on a search and rescue mission to pull from danger those who were lost and destined to spend eternity in hell. He did this by, of course, going to the cross and dying for their sins, fallen humanity, and rising from the dead, and then by reaching his hand out to them, as it were, with the gospel, which if received would rescue them from the wrath to come. You know, author William MacDonald put it this way, said, and I quote, Verse 4 should be a reminder that God is not interested in improving the world or making men comfortable in it, but in delivering men from it. Our priority should coincide with his end quote. You know, the gospel literally means good news. You know that. Which implies the presence of something bad. I mean, if something is really good news, it implies that something bad is going on. And all of a sudden, there's good news. There's a solution. There's so on, right? The bad news that makes the gospel such good news is that man having rebelled in the Garden of Eden was doomed to spend eternity in hell. That was the bad news. This would be the judgment that all of Adam's descendants, the whole human race, without exception, would be forced to endure. And there was nothing any of us can do to escape this eternal judgment. I mean, when Adam and Eve blew it for themselves, they blew it for all of us. Because every one of their descendants after them would be born fallen sinners, doomed to spend eternity separate from God in hell. And there's nothing we could do to change that but I love the first two words of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God. We were doomed to spend eternity in hell. We had no hope, but God. He came to our rescue, Jesus. But God, who was rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, lest any should boast. Folks, that's truly good news. I was telling First Service that we've heard it so many times, it's lost its impact. It's old news. It's old news. We've heard it so many times, what Jesus did for us, and how he saved us from the fires of hell, that it's almost like, oh yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Oh yeah, that's great, Wonderful. I think sometimes it's helpful to think about hell. Now, don't go telling people my pastor wants me to think a lot about hell. (laughs) I want you to think a lot about hell. (laughs) But I sometimes think about hell. What would it be like to spend eternity in a place like hell? And, of course, it immediately causes me to be so thankful that Jesus died for my sins so that I wouldn't have to spend eternity in a horrible place like that. That's good news, that Jesus died for our sins, right? God so loved fallen sinners that he sent his son to die in our place to save us from eternal punishment in hell. Now, when you talk about hell, some people get very nervous. Um, And they'll tell you something like, well, I don't want to scare people into heaven by talking about hell. I'd much rather tell them about the love of God. Oh, look, I've talked about this before. I'm I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm not going to get into it we've already talked about it but look jesus talked about hell more than anyone else as we have said before he talked about it more than he talked about heaven or even love and he did it he talked about hell so much because he didn't want anyone to go there he wanted them to know it's a real place it's not a concept or a principle or whatever it's a real place where real people go for all of eternity and he didn't want them to go there right god so loved This world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus would not have to spend eternity in hell but would have everlasting life, right? Jesus didn't want anyone to go. That's why he talked so much about hell. But today, guys, almost all evangelism is based on the love of God. We hear very little, if any, based on coming judgment. You just don't hear that today. It's pretty much all based on any. Gospel presentation and evangelism is usually based on the love of God. But guys, do you realize that nowhere in the book of Acts does anyone, apostle or otherwise, ever use the love of God as a basis for presenting the gospel? And the first time I heard that, I was taken aback. I didn't realize it. So you're saying we can't talk about God's love at all? We witnessed. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But we just need to understand there, there should be a balance between the love of God for sinners and the wrath of God that's going to be poured out against sin. There should be a balance. We should understand that they're both in play. That, again, nobody ever in the book of Acts ever used God's love as a basis for presenting the gospel. It was always the message of, look, judgment's coming. Flee to Christ for safety. That was the message, right? Guys, without any talk of coming judgment, the gospel is reduced from an emergency alert siren, if I can put it that way, to happy talk. The gospel isn't a message that is designed to make people feel happy or good about themselves. It's a brutal indictment of our sinful lives and how only by Jesus dying on the cross would there be any hope for any of us to escape hell. It's, it's a brutal indictment of our own sinfulness. We messed it up so badly in the Garden of Eden that we, can't, we couldn't even fix it. It would take God to become one of us, to die in our place. The innocent dying for the guilty. And guys, in that regard, the gospel is not happy talk. Oh, God loves you, and has a wonderful plan for your life. Let's go out and get something deep. <laughs> the gospel is a warning for people to flee coming judgment by running to Christ for shelter and safety. I've used this illustration before, but we live in the Midwest. And tornadoes are, you know, a reality in the Midwest, right? Every town in the Midwest, by law, has to have a tornado warning system. How do you feel when that siren goes off? Yeah. I mean, we know in my town every Tuesday, first Tuesday of the month, they test it. So, you know, it's not too bad because you know it's coming. But what if you are, you know, fast asleep in your little bed, 3 o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden this thing went off blaring? Is your first response, oh, I love that siren. It's just, every time I hear it, I feel so good, so happy inside. No, your first reaction is terror, because you know what that means. It's warning you something bad is coming, and you better take shelter. You better flee to the basement or into some kind of a, a, a place that is reinforced that you can, you know, find safety, That's what the gospel was always intended by God to be. Like that warning siren. It was God sending people into the world to warn them. Something bad is coming. It's called judgment. And the only safety is in Christ. Come to Christ and be saved. God loves you. Jesus died for you. But today, people have turned the gospel into happy talk. And too many pastors and preachers have stopped urging people to receive receive Jesus as, as the one who will save them from hell. Instead, they've turned him into some kind of a sanctified butler (laughs) whose job it is to save them from all the discomforts and unpleasant trees of life. It's as one pastor put it. He said, for these folks, prayer then becomes tantamount to ringing a little bell calling for butler Jesus to come and bring them up another pillow. I'm sorry to say that's the sad state of American Christianity for the most part. Country club Christianity. Do you realize that Jesus was the first hellfire and damnation preacher of the new covenant? Now you say, well, no, wait a minute. That was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was technically the last preacher slash prophet of the old covenant. I must decrease, he must increase. It overlapped their ministries. John's was fading out the old covenant. Jesus was, his was, bringing in the new covenant. So Jesus technically was the first hellfire and damnation preacher of the new covenant. Now we think that for a person to be a hellfire and damnation preacher, they got to be screaming. You know, they got to be up there with eyes bulging and veins popping and red face and fire breathing, denouncing, condemning everybody. Jesus didn't do that. You can preach hellfire and damnation with love you can god loves you yes hell's real the good news is you don't have to go there jesus died for you jesus would say i love you come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, i'll give you rest you can preach hellfire and damnation with love is what jesus did which is what we should do unfortunately guys we are in such a post-christian era in america we like to say america is a christian nation it might have been at one point it's not anymore we have entered into a total post-christian era when you talk to people and you tell them say god opens the door for you to witness to somebody and you tell them you know jesus loves you he wants to save you often to look at you in all sincerity and go save me from what i don't even have a clue save me from what Unfortunately, the answer for many pulpits today seems to be to save them from poverty or depression or a low self-esteem. Churches are where people should go to find answers to these very important questions. But churches are so messed up, they haven't got so many, haven't got their heads on straight, they don't even know what they're doing. No, Jesus didn't come to save you from poverty or depression or low self-esteem. He came to save you from the fires of hell from eternal judgment guys the preaching of coming judgment used to dominate pulpits all across this nation it was the basis for many revivals for the great awakenings that this nation enjoyed great awakenings under men like jonathan edwards who in his sermon sinners in the hands of an angry god stop and think about that for a minute Can you imagine if we had a building and a marquee out in front and we put Sunday's message, sinners in the hands of an angry God," I guarantee you that nobody would show up. They'd keep driving down to another church that had something better, something more positive and upbeat. But Jonathan Edwards in that sermon said, unconverted men are walking on an icy plank over the pit of hell and at any moment their foot can slip and they will fall headlong into eternal destruction the wrath of god burns against them wow i mean can you imagine a message like that being preached today in this day of political correctness where the goal of so many preachers is to keep things positive upbeat and non-confrontational how does a person escape and we're done let me just say this and and we'll just use this to set up next time how does a person escape the judgment of hell well, very simply by repenting and believing the gospel. But that assumes the correct gospel, the real gospel, right? The one and only true gospel, the one Jesus committed to his church to take into all the world and preach to everyone we come in contact with, mostly through our lives and then through our words. Only the true gospel can save us from coming judgment. We know that. Everything else is a lie from the devil designed to pervert and twist the gospel so that it won't open the door of salvation, even if a person believes it with all their heart. Again, I think of Jehovah's Witnesses. I think of Mormons. Now, they have taken Christianity, and the devil has so twisted it that they think they're the only true Christians. They're the only true Christians. But they don't have the true gospel. And then you've got other religions, of course, like Islam. You know, their gospel is, if you die in jihad you enter into paradise immediately and have 72 virgins waiting for you you can't deny their sincerity their commitment to that gospel i mean they they're dying in jihad all the time for what they believe in i think of these young muslim men tragic they strap bomb belts on themselves and walk into a crowded marketplace and detonate themselves thinking that When they open their eyes, they're going to be in paradise with 72 virgins around them only to open their eyes and find themselves in Hades, but eventually in hell. How horrible to be so deceived that you die for what you believe only to realize you died for a lie. The only thing that can keep you free from lies, the devil's lies, is the truth of God. I'll end with this. Jesus said in John 8, right? He said in verses 31 and 2, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you shall know the truth, and the truth, and I'll paraphrase, will keep you free from Satan's lies. And so we will continue, God willing, next time in our new series, A Journey in Liberty Through Galatians. Father, we thank you that you've given us your truth as a, a beacon of light we thank you lord that we don't have to walk in darkness we can walk in your light and never stumble in darkness we thank you lord for your grace we ask you to keep blessing now this new series and we just give it to you lord we ask all this in jesus precious name amen